0: Hi there, and thanks for listening to the Adulting Is Easy podcast. My name is Lauren, and I manage the Adulting Is Easy blog and podcast, which can be found at realadultingiseasy.com. I'm joined today by my guest Brett Holzhauer, lifelong uh, journalist who works for Forbes Advisor. He covers consumer trends, personal finance, industry news, travel, and also points and miles. When he's not chasing the next story, he and his wife are traveling the world or chasing the next hot restaurant in town. So he's a first-generation college student, proud Sun Devil, and on a lifelong journey to demystify personal finance and empower people to change their lives through powerful storytelling. Thanks for being here, Brett.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Uh, this is actually the very first podcast I've ever been a guest on, so I'm uh, I'm really excited to get to know your audience and uh, tell, a, hopefully, a pretty good story.
0: Yeah, they're going to love it. I'm, I'm so excited about it. Um, As always, our goal for today is to make personal finance, uh, to make adulting a bit easier for our listeners by discussing a personal finance topic, since managing money is a big part of adulting. Uh, We're continuing with the guest hosting format. I'm giving my sister and my usual co-host some time to enjoy her senior year of high school. Um, So today I'm going to learn about Brett's background, his passion for personal finance, and we're going to dive specifically into student loans. We did talk about that you're a first generation college student and a proud Sun Devil, but that did come with a little bit of a price. So we'll talk about that. Does that cover it, Brett?
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's it. I'm a very uh, big uh, proponent of talking about student loans. It's one of those um, really uh, keen words that is a, it's a big hot topic, um, you know, in personal finance right now, and obviously. Um, in the world. I mean, we're at somewhere of $1.4, $1.5 trillion in student debt. So it's something that we need to talk about.
0: Absolutely. That's that's a great point. And it's going up as far as I know, every single day. So, yeah. um, And I don't know much about student loans. I did not have them. So I'm really excited for this. Um, and the listeners are certainly going to love you and your wife's story. So let's get into it.
1: Okay. So where do I start? Uh, so I graduated from high school in 2011. And I was a pretty average student to say the least. Uh, My goal was to play collegiate water polo. Um, I was getting recruited um, by several schools. I decided that 17 year old Brett needed uh, a little bit more growing up to do. So I enrolled in my local junior college. Of course, junior college is the very cost efficient way um, of going to college. I was still able to play collegiate water polo um, for two years. So from 2011 to 2013, um, I was at Santa Monica college. Um, for those two years, cost me, you know, we'll call it four to $5,000, so very affordable. No loans needed at that time. My parents were um, able to pay for that, which I'm very uh, grateful for. My last two years, unfortunately, um, you know, I went to Arizona State University. I transferred to the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism, was able to follow my passion for journalism. Um, you know, I don't regret the experience at all. ASU is a big part of my life now, especially being a first-generation college student. Um, I'm that ridiculous college football fan um, that paints his face that, you know, wakes up at Saturday morning at 6 a.m. I'm that guy. Um, So it's a big part of my life. But unfortunately, um, you know, I'm still paying the price for it. So we can kind of get into the details of that.
0: Yeah, I uh, also a huge college fan. I went to the University of Florida and I think I was telling you this. I was blessed that we won the national championship my freshman year. So that was huge been a big fan ever since and uh, so far it looks like we're going to have a season this year so I'm excited about that. Uh,
1: I'm jealous on two fronts the fact that a you got to see a national championship as a student but also the fact that you guys are actually having a season this year not to go into too much of that but um, the Pac-12 which is the conference that my school plays in and my wife uh, she graduated from the University of Utah Um, we folded our seasons this year so um, you're lucky on multiple fronts I'm very very jealous of you.
0: Yeah, sorry. Don't mean to rub it in, except that's what Gator fans typically do. Typically. (laughs) Um, No, yeah, thanks for sharing. That's really good background. And it's interesting because we're talking about student loans. However, often when we think about student loans, we think about people doing a four-year degree and having four years worth of loans, maybe even to a private institution. And that's when people get in trouble. You didn't do that right? You did two years at a JC and then just did two years. And I think it was out of state, but you know, as far as I know, it's not a private school, right? So um, you made made some great decisions there. However, it still landed you with some debt.
1: Yeah. So coming out of college, I ended up with just under $73,000 in student loans for those two years. Now, just to put in context for the listeners, that is including tuition, room and board, food, all of my expenses. So that's all an all encompassing um, cost. So, you know, $73,000, um, you know, in hindsight now, you know, now being in my career um, really isn't a ton of money. Um, and we can get again to the, the details of how I've been able to pay off the vast majority of it. Um, but it is still a crippling crisis that we need to talk about, and of course the subject of you know public student loans versus private student loans, um, which I definitely have a unique story um, when it comes to that relationship as well. But um, you know everyone's paths are different, um, and I tried to do college the first two years as cost efficient as possible. And, you know, 19 year old Brett saw this big university with, you know, big pool parties, big D1 college football and and a a beautiful journalism school that's top ranked in the country and said, I don't care how much this costs, I'm going to make my dreams come true. So, you know, I'm thankful for my eagerness, but I'm also not so thankful for my uh, lack of perspective when it came to money at the time.
0: Yeah. And that's another, I think, key point here is that you knew what you wanted to do, right? You wanted to be a journalist. You took on debt to go to a great school for your profession and you are working in that profession now. That's also something that a lot of people with student loans, they end up getting a degree in something that they're not even sure they want to do, right?
1: Absolutely. And and again, you know, contextually, the first thing I ever wanted to be at five years old was a weatherman. So this is all I've ever wanted to do. This is Everything that I dreamed of, um, you know, currently with my um, my position at Forbes Advisor. Um, whereas a lot of people, unfortunately, graduate with six figures of debt. Um, you know, perfect example: a lot of people go to law school and then they graduate with two hundred fifty thousand dollars in debt and decide eh, being a lawyer sucks. I don't want to do this. And then what? Then like then where do you go from there? So, um, you know, for me again, the one thankful part or multiple thankful parts of my student loans is that I truly you know, with my
0: entire heart and soul, love my profession and love the degree I got. It just costs a lot of money. Yeah. And it probably would have been six figures had it been four years,
1: right? Absolutely. So actually, and thank you for bringing that up. So out of high school, I was accepted to, to Arizona State University. So had, um, you know, in theory, i gone for those four years, um, you know, it would have been borderline double. So if you would take 73 times two, um, you know, you're looking at almost $150,000 in debt And uh, really, the main reason I didn't go um, out of high school was truly 17-year-old Brett wasn't able to handle himself, um, you know, coming out of, um, you know, his parents' house and being on his own and having no rules. Um, You know, ASU is notoriously known as one of the biggest party schools in the country, um, which, you know, in response, I say, well, I know a bunch of other colleges that are big party schools. I'm sure University of Florida, is. I know, Florida State, (laughs) Harvard, all these, every school is a party school, right? But again, it's having the self-awareness. Um, You know, are you actually going to? Number one, are you going to college for you, not for your parents and not for societal pressures? And number two, are you going because you truly see that this is my career path? This is what I want to do with my entire heart and soul. Um, And and then you can start justifying the cost. But um, but yeah, we can get more into the uh, the nuances of the student debt. um, So feel free to ask away.
0: Yeah, and seventeen year old Brett, what I will say about him is to have the fourth thought and to know that you potentially weren't ready. That's more than a lot of people were thinking at that age.
1: Yeah. And I, I, for a minute, I really did think that I was ready. And then reality kind of set in towards the end of my senior year that I I don't think I'm ready to do this. And um, of course, the cost, I did realize the cost savings at the time and and looking back in hindsight, um, going to junior college really did prepare me um, for moving away from home and getting me ready for the real world. And um, you know, 17-year-old Brett to 19-year-old Brett when he left uh, for college, um, you know, was night and day. So um had it up in for my junior college. I don't know where I'd be. So um, I am thankful. Of course, it was a little bit of a sacrifice in terms of experience-wise, but um, obviously saved me a ton of money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's an underrated path in today's um, day and age. So I'm glad. And thank you for sharing that. And I do want to dive into student loans. Before we get into that, I think There's something else that people should know about you. And it really has to do with your lifestyle. And one thing that I really like about what's going on in personal finance right now, certainly what's bouncing around, quote unquote, money Twitter, is obviously we all know about retirement the way that is pretty much the classic way to do retirement. Work and save for 40-ish years, retire and consume for 20-ish or whatever, right? And then there's the FIRE movement, which is almost like, The exact opposite of that, which is like work for a short time, save ninety percent ish now, about some I think fifty percent or whatever, and you're considered fire. But save a ton of your money and get out early, right? So these are kind of two extremes. There's a middle ground which I like that people are talking about lately, and that's living, living while you're working, right? Doing things that you love while you're working and not necessarily having the typical lifestyle. So I was. I want before we jump into your student loans. Will you tell tell the listeners about the last like few years of, of your your life and um, how you met your wife and going to live with her and all of that background too?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So coming out of college in August of 2015, um, my journalism path didn't really fall in my lap um, as I expected it to. Not that I expected it to just be handed to me, but a lot of my other colleagues that I went to journalism school with. Uh, it just seemed as if it, it kind of came natural to them. And for me, again, being a, a transfer student at my journalism school, I was already a little bit behind the eight ball. So it didn't um, really manifest in the way that I thought it would. But nonetheless, um, it all came around um, in full circle. But to kind of put it contextually, so I came home from college in May of 2015. And about two weeks later, I get on this new dating app called Tinder. Never heard of it. And the first girl I matched with, her name is Kirsten. And I said, hey, you know, it's really nice to meet you. I'd love to, you know, take you out to dinner. And sure enough, met her for dinner. And six hours later, I said, you know, I'm probably going to marry you. And of course, I'm thinking this in my head, right? I'm thinking, God, I'm so nuts. What is going on here? And sure enough, (laughs) about three, about three, yeah, three, two and a half, three years later, we ended up getting married. Uh, So, you know, it's an awesome story in that sense. But, where I was going with that is. So I came home from college, met her. She was leaving after the summer to go back to Salt Lake city um, for her schooling. And I said, well, I'm stuck here in LA. This place is not where I want to be. Um, You know, it's time to make a change. So the first job I got was in Salt Lake city. I packed up my crappy Honda Accord and I took off and uh, was on a one way drive to Salt Lake city, started my career there, started my um, epic job hopping um, that we can uh, talk about as well. But, um, Yeah, we ended up getting engaged, got married. And then one year after we got married, we left Salt Lake City after she graduated and we became full-time digital nomads. Um, And for your listeners that don't know, a digital nomad is basically someone that lives out of their backpack and works online and travels the world um, without any um, hard living situation where you're paying rent somewhere, have a car payment or things of that nature. So we've really dialed back our... or lifestyle, but at the same time, to your point, um, you know, we, we would love to be in that fire movement and saving a ridiculous amount of our income, but that's just not who we are. For example, if we want to go out for, you know, a two, $300 dinner, we're going to do that because that's what we, what we really appreciate. But I don't remember the last time I bought myself a new T-shirt or a new pair of shoes. So for us, it's more of we spend money on the things that bring us the most value in our life. For example, scuba diving as well. We're really big scuba divers now that we live here in South Florida. So for us, we find the middle ground um, you know, in the things that we care about. Another perfect example, we bought a car that has a ton of dents in it because we really could care less what we drive. It's just not who we are. Um, so I do think there's a middle ground to the whole fire movement. But um, but yeah, that's who I am in a nutshell. Um, for five years, I job hopped like crazy. I grew my income, almost tripled it in the past five years because of job hopping. I'm a huge proponent of it. And um, that's who I am.
0: So where did, where have you guys been? I know you're in South Florida now. Where else have you, um, I'm going to say lived, but it's like in quotations, right?
1: Yeah, totally. So we, we were only able to travel for four months, unfortunately, because COVID um, reared its ugly head into our travel. So we left in August. So our four month travels took us to Fiji, Tonga, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Bali, Thailand, Malaysia, Japan, Thailand. and I'm missing one or two more, and then we returned back home to Los Angeles, um, where we got stuck once COVID hit. So it was a fun four months. Um, we bounced around a ton. Um, would love to do it again once um, COVID decides to head out, and we uh, you know get get a get a. A solution to this large pandemic. but uh, but yeah, that's what we did for a couple months.
0: Yeah, that is so cool. And there's this other idea of this hybrid approach to retirement where you have these mini retirements, but that's not what this was. This wasn't some sabbatical from your jobs with a mini retirement. You were working.
1: Yeah, we were working the entire time. I was working for a small publication actually based here in South Florida. My wife was teaching English online to kids in China while we were traveling. We just really had to balance out our days. Uh, We'd always figure a little bit of work into our day and a little bit of adventure. And and the coolest part about the lifestyle is – that people see, of course, you post on Instagram, like you're going out for, you know, avocado toast here in Bali, you're going to this restaurant in Australia. And what's interesting is that the older generations have have built this notion that traveling is expensive, not when you do it as a digital nomad. When you have zero overhead and you're staying in $8 a night hostels in Bali, or you're staying in $25 a night hotels that are actually really nice in you know Thailand, for example, your costs actually really go down significantly and when you boil back all of your monthly expenses and you eliminate them it it frees up a lot of cash flow and it's a very different lifestyle and it, again it's not all you know rainbows and unicorns and and beautiful sunsets there were some days where we asked ourselves are we insane for doing this you know should we just go home is this really for us i mean the first 24 hours we definitely had a few mental breakdowns but, um, you know, we, we wouldn't take it back for the world. I mean, we got to dive with humpback whales in Tonga. We got to go to Disneyland in Tokyo. We got to experience incredible cultures. And, uh, yeah, it was a, a great financial decision, one. And two, it was an amazing life experience as well. And it uh, really brings perspective into, you know, how powerful American dollars are as well.
0: Yeah, that's incredible and great, great points. I my husband and I were batting around this idea because I went full remote in February before, slightly before COVID. My husband was in full remote for about a year and a half. And so in February we were kicking that idea around of, you know, selling our house and not having anything and just air, you know, bouncing from Airbnb to Airbnb. And my mom looked at me like I was crazy and I, I said, you know, our mortgage payment with taxes, insurance, flood insurance, I'm also in Florida, um, it was 2100 a month. And, you know, I was like, we, that can go a pretty long way in some ways. Um, you know, we didn't end up doing it, obviously, because COVID happened, but we did end up selling that house and, you know, buying the house with the vacation rentals in the back to kind of try to get rid of this mortgage payment in theory. To free us up to travel more later, right? Free up the budget, Yeah,
1: and, and by freeing up yourself from those financial constraints is what I call them, regardless of their assets or liabilities. Um you you feel a sense of freedom. And it, it's unexplainable. Um, you know, and it could be even things like clothing. For example, like if you're really into expensive clothing, it, it just it frees you so much. And again, I'm not a huge proponent of like extreme minimalism where you only have like two or three t-shirts. But again, do you really need a closet of 47 t-shirts when you're going to get the same value out of 17?
0: So right. it's having you get those content- 17 from a thrift store?
1: <laughs> exactly. Like just it's, <laughs> it's the conscious decisions. And, you know, I'm going to give a shameless plug to one of my favorite personal finance books. I will teach you to be rich. It's really just boiling back. Like what are the things that you truly, truly value? For example, if you love computers, spend 10 grand on a computer, if that's what you truly love, but then if you really don't care about shoes then buy just secondhand shoes or knockoff shoes or do whatever it is you need to do to boil those expenses back um, immensely. And again, we can relate that back all, um, you know, to the student loan subject. Um, But it is a bigger conversation, especially in America where we live in this hyper-consumer culture that um, hasn't really been discussed yet at at scale. And it's something that I'm I'm challenging people in my inner circle to really take a look at um, you know, for their own lives as well. So it's an interesting subject to say the least.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Great points. So um, thank you for sharing that background um, with you and your wife, Kirsten. That's awesome. Um, I think that's something that people should know exists, that it, there's there's there are, diff- there are many different ways to live. Um, so let's do it. Let's dive into your student loans. I know you said you started with $73,000 um and that was in 2015 right right now it's 2020 so it was 5 years ago
1: right correct yes so i'm 5 5 months and a couple of weeks removed from college completely so, I started with just under $73,000. Um, during the first couple of years of my career, I did some job hopping and wasn't really making a ton of money. I was you know, really living bare bones, so I wasn't able to make a true debt into my student loans. So, they actually ended up growing to about 78000 which isn't you know, a ton, but um, obviously you know, not making any progression forward is kind of a bummer. Um, but what's interesting, and I, I've written a piece about this for the money manual, and I'll, I'll send you the link so you can you know, put it in your show description is this notion and this idea that millennials specifically, again, I'm 26, so I'm kind of on the tail end of the millennials, is this idea of waiting to get married solely because of debt. And I'll make the case for it. So when you have one firefighter fighting one fire, it can seem pretty difficult. But if you have two firefighters fighting one fire, it goes out a lot quicker. So now I'll paint the picture. So we it got up to 78,000, slid back down to about 74 and then we got married. This was in June of 2018, so this is, you know, ballpark, we'll call it 27 months ago. So in 27 months, we were able to pay off just over $50,000 of my student loans. So right now as we sit recording this, I'm at I believe $23,600. And so, you know, how did I do that? How did we make this vast jump in paying off my student loans? One, digital nomading was a huge part of it. We got rid of all of our overhead and all of our bills outside of really just finding a place to sleep for the night and somewhere cheap to eat outside of the United States. Now, was every single country that we went to ultra cheap? No, of course not. Japan's a very expensive country, but we only spent a couple days there. We were in Bali for two weeks, very inexpensive. We went to Malaysia for a month, very inexpensive. So we, we had to balance it out, right? Of course, we still wanted to live and enjoy our travels and not you know avoid the expensive countries because there's a lot to see there, obviously. So the in those 26-27 months, we digital nomaded, we had at least one what I call one and a half income because my wife um, hasn't quote-unquote, officially started her career, yet she's working at a scuba shop um, currently. So she earns you know a, a, a decent wage, but it's more of like the cheddar on top kind of a wage, not a true second income. And then as we've traveled and done these things, she's always had what I call a half income. However, when COVID hit and we were living with her parents for about six months trying to figure out what was going on in the world, this thing called Instacart started blowing up. We're like, okay, we're, you know, two young, healthy people. Some people can't get to the grocery store. We live in a major city. We have no, we barely had any expenses. This is a way to triple down and give back to the community as well. We were actually feature, featured in a news piece in Washington, D.C. My wife was making almost $5,000 a month during the hot spree of Instacart. She was making more than I was. And, wow. and the cool part too, again, you know, the financial benefit was immense. But to see the gratitude on people's faces that couldn't get to the grocery store, you know, assumingly because they had, um, you know, they were immunocompromised or just didn't feel comfortable going to the grocery store um, was so gratifying. I mean, literally we had grandmas dancing like in the windows for us, like so happy just to get a thing in toilet paper. I mean, it was just such an interesting rewarding experience during like the, the true first wave of coronavirus and the economic shutdown. And obviously the financial uh, benefits as well were huge. Um, for doing it and also taking just a couple months to, to regroup and stay with her parents um, was immensely helpful. So, you know, how did we pay off $50,000 and we'll call it 26, 27 months? It was me side hustling when we first got married, growing my income right when we got married as well. It was uh, my wife side hustling as well. And frankly, the core responsibility, the, co- the, the core of paying this debt off was being married. And really having that, that support, that emotional support, financial support, um, just support. I, I really am sold on the idea of being married with debt because you have someone else to be accountable for. You have someone else to emotionally support you. You have someone just to be there. And of course, coming into my into our marriage, I had between my car, my student loans, and, um, and some credit card debt, I had about $100,000 in debt and now you know we're in the green in just 5 years so it's it's been an interesting journey to say the least but getting more into the student loans the one other thing that i haven't covered is the public versus private um, conversation so i
0: originated my yeah Brett, Go real ahead. quick let me just let me just i, I went on a ramble part. sorry <laughs> no, no 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 you're fine you're fi- no you're fine and not, i'm i'm obviously we're going to get to that too um I just want to clarify for listeners, your wife did not have any student loans. So you're both the tax because it's only, I mean, some people, it's both, right? They both. Correct. Have it. Yes. Um, so I just want, I just wanted to clarify that, uh, the Instacart story, absolutely awesome. And this is the thing that I think is really interesting too. You can make money and do good in the world at the same time. Absolutely. Right? It's not and like, also enjoy or the well. other. <laughs> yeah. And enjoy it. There you go. Have fun, make money, do good in the world. Perfect. That's like the trifecta, and that is so ideal. I love what you said about firefighters, right? Two people putting out a fire—it's amazing. Um, in the past, I've owned a couple of properties. This is the first property that I've owned jointly with someone, and it's my husband. We've been married about a year, and it is nice to, you know, when there's when there's a payment due, uh, you know, we would get an invoice for the roof or we get an invoice for the structure. Like he's taking care of both of those, right? He's bought, he's taking care of the fence, right? I'm um, responsible for, you know, the kitchen and the paint. And we just bought a camper, which I bought, right? It's like it is so amazing to know that there is another person and like you're not counting pennies and figure out, is this your money? Is this my money? And and that does have to do with being married. And it sounds silly because you think, okay, what does having being married have to do with it? You knew you were gonna be together forever, probably, but it has to do with now, when you break up, there's paperwork involved and someone gets to own all these different parts. I think it sounds it sounds awful. Right. But there's these legal protections to, you know, that you both own these things. It says it. Right. I mean, naturally, when I just owned a house and the AC broke, why would my husband be like, yeah, I'll throw it? I'm like, you know, I paid for that AC. He didn't own the house. Right. But now if that happened, I'd be like, hey, it's your turn. You pay for the AC. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. It's
1: It's an interesting I think. Subject as we, of course, you know, the not to get into, uh, you know, other topics, if you will, but obviously the uh, traditional marriages, uh, you know, it's being redefined as society, you know, is evolving and growing. Um, And not to say that, you know, there's only one right way to do things, but, uh, you know, being married and, and growing your financial health and wealth together and having just, again, that someone else to lean on, regardless of how much that second person makes, whether it's, you know, 15 grand a year or 200 grand a year. um, There's just something about it that's unexplainable. And I it's it's something I didn't expect being married. And it's a huge plus really, uh, because my wife, again, being a teacher, um, you know, she's never going to make an an immense income by any means. Um, But just again, knowing that I have someone to lean on and, support me and I can support her as well. Um, you know, it manifests in a really weird way.
0: Yeah, that's that's very well said, of course, uh, as you are a writer. Um, <laughs> so all right, let's let's dive in. So oh, the other thing before we get there, your student loan balance went up. Yes were you paying on it? I was, yes. Um, so you
1: know, there's been a, a viral TikTok of a, uh, a young woman who's been paying on her student loans and she's paid an immense amount of money and it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Um, so during the period that it went up, um, I experienced uh, some job loss. So I took some, for, or I had um, some forbearance, excuse me. So when you, the nice part with having private student loans is that, of course, you like you have to pay that money back, but they can work with you depending on the servicer. So my servicer at the time uh, was SoFi. A lot of people are familiar. Um, they're like the nine uh, the nine dot square. Um, that's you know all over SportsCenter center, and they're a huge advertiser. They um, allowed me to defer my student loans. Of course, they ended up growing unfortunately, but I didn't have to pay on them, um, and I was also making very little more than minimum payments. So it was just this kind of just endless cycle of, you know, money in and it wasn't going down by any means. Um, And I I think it was a a part of like the mindset of scale, like it was like a scarcity mindset, like, oh, you know, I'm like so far behind that I'll just never get ahead. And then again, the, the friction point was getting married and getting a side hustle for myself and growing my income um, was really the game changer. And as soon as I saw a little bit of progress, I just went all chips in and just started pouring everything into it.
0: So minimum payment on student loans does not mean that you're paying down the principal.
1: Correct. Yes. Yeah. So it's you know it's kind of similar to a mortgage in a sense. So those first few mortgage payments, it's pretty much all interest and no and hardly any principal. So it's the same factor as that. And uh, you know another thing that is very unique about my story is that a lot of people again are are on the public um, student loan. Uh, program where their loans are funded by the government, Um, I originated my student loans um, private and have always kept mine private. Uh, So I originated them with Wells Fargo. My mom was a co-signer. And then as soon as I graduated, she said, get me the hell off of these things. And so I went ahead and refinanced and I've actually refinanced five or six times. I believe it's six times now technically. And that was also a big, big, big part of it. And, you know, not to get into the political um, arena by any means, but um, as I was telling you in our pre-show, Uh, When it comes to student loans, um, you know, a lot of uh, political figures want to say, we're going to figure the student loan stuff out. We're going to figure it out. We're going to, you know, forgive your student loans, whether that's true, whether that's true or not true. At the end of the day, the only person that's going to save you is yourself. That's that's just my mantra. That's what I believe in. Um, You know, we've seen political figures over and over again, make promises that they can't keep. And at the end of the day, uh, you are going to save yourself. Um, And the best way to do it is just by paying it off and just moving forward as best as possible. So right. um, I'm I mean, a huge if, proponent of private student loans.
0: Yeah. And if you, um, if you make the assumption that someone is going to bail you out at some point very soon, um, you might be making these payments and it be growing that whole time. Exactly. I of like credit cards too, right? Like making the minimum payment on a credit card, like that sucker just keeps growing and growing. So that's interesting. And also I think, Again, also not to be political, but they probably if something does happen, it might just be with public student loans also it, it exactly happen. so
1: and, and thank you for bringing that up so the the hard part that so one of the big value propositions of private student loans is to get people away from the public sector because the uh, the servicers are really difficult to deal with. And obviously, you know, any government situation is just, it tends to be a nightmare. So once you go private and consolidate all of them, um, you lose all of those rights. So that's the scary part for people. So, you know, specifically there's a uh, PSLF program. So it's the public student loan forgiveness program. Long story short, if you work for a uh, qualifying employer for 10 plus years, whether it be nonprofit or what have you, your student loans should be forgiven by making 10 years of on-time payments. Well, you know, there's uh, there's been multiple stories that of all the people that apply, once they've paid off, once they've you know met all the criterion, less than one percent actually get approved for forgiveness. So you've been sitting there for ten years, praying to Jesus that you are going to get, um, you know, your student loans forgiven, and it's a less than one percent acceptance rate. So again, um, you know, there's multiple data points to you know to suggest that um, the the government isn't going to help you or bail you out and. Once again, the only person that's going to help you is yourself. And, uh, you know, when it comes to refinancing student loans over and over again, similar to a house, you continue to lower that interest rate and working with different servicers and understanding which servicers you like and don't like, um, you know, has been very successful for me. Um, I bounced between four or five different servicers and the last servicer I had, I was down to a 2.2 interest rate which is basically next, I mean, it's essentially free money. And then thankfully enough, and of course, not everyone has um, this privilege, we'll call it. Um, my father-in-law was able to just purchase my student loans for me. And he said, hey, if, if you want to go buy a house, you know, let's get this thing taken off your, your credit score. You go purchase a house and just pay me back. So I still owe the student loans in full, uh, but it's at, thankfully at a 0% interest rate. But um, you know, my biggest push towards people with student loans, whether public or private, Find a way to get them paid off. Don't sit and wait and pretend like it's not there. Get after it. Go find a side hustle. Work four jobs if you have to and just pour as much money into it, but then at the same time being cognizant of what makes the most financial sense. So right now being at 0%, does it make more sense for me to pay off my father-in-law or does it make more sense for me to start investing for the future? And it's option B. Of course, my father-in-law understands um, that aspect of it, that I'm not you know, pushing more money towards him and he's okay with that. So everyone's situation is different, but what remains equal is pushing as much money into it as fast as you can.
0: Mm-hmm. And another reason to get married. Yes. And another reason to get married. Yeah. Just, you
1: know, I jokingly said to my wife, man, I'm so excited for two things. One, those tax write-offs and two, you're just going to drown in my student loans as much as I am. So welcome to the party.
0: <laughs> and your father-in-law's and your dad's going to help. Yeah, and your dad's going to eventually help as well. But, you know, nonetheless, I
1: mean, you know, it's been a fair trade-off. Of course I've made, um, you know, a significant, amount of the income and obviously we've supported each other in you know in different ways and um, you know i'm still so thankful for my wife uh, you know once we pay off my student loans and hit zero i'm gonna do something very very special for her and i don't know what that is yet um but we'll, we'll see she's hinted at getting a bigger wedding ring and just like oh, okay i guess that's what you really want
0: but uh, i you know, love that that's yes. cool um no and I but I also like what you're talking about there's a theme of accountability there right you made these decisions you need to pay them off and I can't remember who said it right but like hope is not a strategy right hoping someone's going to come save you that's not a strategy and I I'd be willing to bet your father-in-law don't know him mm-hmm. right but if he's successful enough to help you out in in such a way he um, probably would not have done so if you were making the minimum, letting them grow, not doing these side hustles and not really making an effort to handle this thing, the student debt that you chose to take on.
1: Absolutely. What I call is I've established really a, a credit score with my father-in-law. I, you know, he knows the salary that I make. He understands our financial situation and he believes that I'm going to pay this off. And I've we've proven that month in and month out. And um, I'm very sure that, um, you know, he's not worried at night. Oh gosh, you know, are Brett and Kirsten going to pay me this month? He might have to worry about his other children doing that, but uh, he doesn't have to worry about us. So again, I'm very (laughs) grateful. And I I definitely have an immense amount of privilege to have supportive family members. uh, But at the same time, uh, you know, I give myself immense credit and my wife credit uh, for pushing through this and and saying, okay, we have this problem. We got to solve for it and getting really creative and just pushing the limits. And I'm not sitting and waiting
0: no, 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 you deserve all of the credit in the world. And, and so does your father-in-law for recognizing that and, and for rewarding you. Um, one thing that, um, and I think this is my last question, <laughs> and it's so funny because it sounds like, okay, yeah, yeah, I refinance my student loans like five or six times. Um, but that's a big thing that I've never heard. I mean, I've heard of refinancing loans. I've heard of taking your public loans private, consolidating them. I haven't heard of getting all the way down to 2.2%. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So again, I originated with Wells Fargo. I then went to, again, if my memory serves me correctly, I went from Wells Fargo to SoFi. I went from SoFi to, I want to say it was like nationwide, like the big car insurance company. They had like a student loan um, center and then it got rebranded into something else. And then I went to PenFed, National Credit Union, and then I went to First Republic Bank and then now I'm with the Bank of Scott, which is my father-in-law. So really the only reason that, um, that I refinance again is just better interest rates. I mean, just, you know, you're a homeowner when you want to get a better interest rate on your home and it's the same process, but it's actually way easier. Um, you know, refinancing is like a big scary word, like, oh my gosh, is it a huge process? Well, when it comes to student loans, there's no asset, um, to be worried about because there's you know, it's a student loan, you know, they're not going to repossess your your degree from you. So the, you know, the process is very, very simple. Every, you know, three to six months, I would look for new interest rates and I found one that was lower. I said, okay, sounds good. Let's move. But what's interesting and this goes into the psychology of money is that Americans specifically are very emotionally tied to their financial servicers. You know, the amount of Americans, and I don't know the number off the top of my head, but there's a lot of research that shows that, um, a significant amount of Americans still bank with the same bank that they had when they were kids because their parents banked there or they knew a teller or something like that. For me, I've moved banks, you know, more, probably more than once a year. And we need to get to a place, um, especially in American society that we shouldn't be comfortable with our financial services, whether you have a good relationship or not with them, uh, you should be able to be comfortable to move because once you get in that uncomfortable place and be willing to move a bunch again, kind of similar to my job hopping experience that's when you really see those motions forward
0: yeah that's that's incredible and what i will just say right here um i started with bank of america when i was 18 again that's what my father had which Mm -hmm. was nice because i was like some gold rewards person so like anytime there was a fee or anything i just like oh hey can you take that off and they would it was it, it was pretty nice but I switched. We got a promote. We got a promotion from Chase at the same exact time that I was changing my name, and Bank of America because I had a joint account with my dad, which was because I borrowed money from him for my first house, the first car about myself, and my second house. Right? I paid each one off before I got the other one. So talk about my dad having a credit score with me, right? Right. Um, so I had, a, I had a joint account with my father, joint account with my husband, and Bank of America said they each need to come in and sign off on your name change. And I said to Bank of America, you know, do you understand that it's this is 2019? What are what are the optics of me having to bring my husband and my father into the bank? And I said, do I have the authority to close them? And they said yes. So I closed the Bank of America accounts, and we ended up getting $600 each to switch to Chase. Exactly, and
1: you know, I actually did the same exact thing. So we were with, I think, U.S. Bank and Chase offered six hundred dollars for checking, three hundred dollars for savings, and then five hundred dollars for a business account. So I think that adds up to usually either thirteen or fourteen hundred dollars. Just again by switching your bank, but so many Americans are almost religious about their bank for some odd reason. It's, it's a very interesting concept. Uh, but now I think as banking is really being redefined, especially you know, during this pandemic, um, we're going to see a large shift, especially with uh, retail banking closing. That's something I'm currently reporting on right now. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting
0: that, you know, you your first bank was with Bank of America because guess what? Your dad banked there. Yeah, he when I was going to college, he's like, here's a credit card and I applied for this for you and here's your account. Thanks dad. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, we're getting pretty long here. I think we've pretty much extended beyond what any, a uh, normal commute or, you know, a normal length of podcast is, um, before we close, why don't you touch on the job hopping thing? Let us know. Um, I know you said in the beginning kind of what that looked like. Um, and then let people know where they can, where they can find you. I will, um, put the, uh, money manual, Link in the show notes, um, but let's let's uh let's kind of like last what's your what are what's your last remarks? Yeah,
1: so just job hopping. I'll keep it short and sweet. So now I'm currently a reporter for Forbes Advisor. Um, you can find me on Twitter um, at Brett underscore Holzhauer. and um, I have my dream job now. And it took a long time of, of bouncing between jobs, and frankly, when it came to job hopping. Uh, for me, I'm not loyal to any one employer I never will be because that's not the economy that we live in now. And if there's a better offer, um, you know, financially, and I like the job better, I'm going to leave. It's really as simple as that, um, you know, for my previous employer, which was LendingTree, I absolutely love the employer. But again, Forbes was one of my all-time dreams, literally as a child to be at. And so when Forbes comes calling and they offer me, um, you know, a significant uh, bump in pay, I'm not going to say no to that, even though I'd only at the employer, For six months, so you know I've been out of the out of college for about five years, and I've had nine jobs. So you can kind of do the math on it, and you know teach their own. I'm not going to sit here and say that my my way is the right way, but to be loyal to an employer now um, is actually costing you money. There's a you know significant amount of studies on it, and um, I really um, emphasize on your listeners that you know if you've been at a job for two three years, it might be time for either a job increase in terms of title and pay at your current company, or maybe it's time to go. Um, Of course, during the pandemic, um, job situations are a bit iffy, um, but really keep that in mind if you're someone out there that has been at their job and kind of getting a little stale and just a little unsure of what to do. Um, But yeah, where you can find me at, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Brett Brett underscore Holzhauer. And um, I write stories about personal finance and Um, how you can not so much be smarter with your money, but what you need to know um, what's going on in the personal finance landscape um, that can hopefully help you build a better kingdom for yourself, if you will.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Um, You know, everybody, managing money is a huge part of adulting. Um, Understanding the financial impact of student loans on your life is, is unfortunately for a lot of people going to be a big part of managing your money. And it almost doesn't matter which stage you're at. It's often... Early in your career, but you may be in a situation where you're later in your career and you are helping someone else pay their student loans, right? Whether that be a spouse or a child, or you might take out student loans for yourself to switch switch careers. So certainly something to pay attention to now, and also something that you may have to think about later. Um, so normally here I ask myself, I ask, you know, hey, Jenny my sister, what did you, what did you learn today? And uh, so I'm the one in in that spot today. And what I really learned from you, Brett, first of all, love the digital nomad lifestyle. Very interesting. Learned a lot about that. And um, what I learned about student loans is that you can and should shop and refinance them.
1: Absolutely. There's no reason you shouldn't. It's the, the opportunities are out there. And if you just take a little bit of time, it can really, really pay its dividends back to you and help you get those, those debts paid down faster.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, hey, everybody, uh, you probably know, but you can follow me on Twitter at Adulting is Easy. I'm also on Facebook. You can email me at realadultingiseasy at gmail.com. I have a Patreon going to get that up and running better than it is right now, um, but that's is adultingiseasy. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Hopefully, we've made adulting a little easier for you.